You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I'm Daniel Janine. I am a producer at Eater. And this week, we are talking to Dan Giusti, who is formerly the chef of Noma and has opened a company called Brigade, where they are looking to change the way that schools serve lunches to kids. He is very relevant in this moment because he, in a lot of the districts that he operates in, is feeding a lot of kids, and they are sending out more meals than they would during the school time. As safely as possible. Yeah. And he is also, I should mention, Daniel, our first guest in quarantine. So he is a good sport uh, by being our <laughs> guinea pig. We're the, we're, we have also been guinea pigs, though. Yeah, sure. We are each other's guinea pigs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I like the sound of that. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, before we talk to Dan Giusti, Daniel, you and I should talk about the current ever-changing state of the restaurant world, the good, the bad, the tragic, the ridiculous, also how we're both doing. Yeah. If you like the show, please uh, rate and review us, tell a friend, give us five stars. What else, Daniel? Tweet about it? Sure, yeah. Send us an email? Sure. Digest at eater.com. Amanda, what should we start with? Uh, I mean, I hate this but I think the biggest news we have to start with is Floyd Cardoz. Yeah, that's a really sad one. Uh, Floyd Cardoz, for those who don't know, is uh, a, a, one of the most prominent New York chefs. We are recording this on Thursday uh, to release on Friday. So yeah, he died this week. I think it was a shock to everyone in the restaurant industry. I think we all knew that this would take someone we knew, but it's just crazy when it actually happens. Yeah. Uh, and he just seems so young. He was so young. He was 59 years old. Um, just so influential, such an important figure. And to think that like within a week, it's just all over is insane to me. He was just someone who was so loved by the whole, by the whole industry. So the world, the restaurant world is in mourning for Floyd, uh, it's also important to note it's Im impacted how people are operating their business. So Andy Ricker of Pock Pock announced yesterday that he was going to close down his restaurants where he had been doing takeout and delivery. After seeing what happened to Floyd, he changed his mind and just decided that, fuck it, this is not safe. I don't want to mess with this and close things down. And I think we are going to see other people follow suit. From the start, everyone has said it's going to affect people you know. But I, I think, I mean, this has happened to me personally. You don't really, you don't really feel yeah. it until it is someone you actually know or, and you get the call or you see that tweet and it's just like, what? So on a less depressing note, do you want to talk about the good things that are happening to kind of get us out of this The mood? good thing is most things 
Most things are less depressing. Yes, everything is less depressing. So I think we maybe talked about this last week, but there's just been so much going on in terms of people trying to help one another. Uh, One of the big things I've noticed, there's kind of this trend uh, of deep-pocketed donors using restaurants as a way to feed people in need. Mm -hmm. So whether that's the state or the government um, or just rich donors or big brands, uh, they are keeping restaurateurs and restaurant workers employed and also giving away food. So a couple examples um, in San Francisco, the people who run Kefico, um, they are getting money Mm -hmm. from, hold on... Former Twitter CEO De Costolo um, said he would donate two thousand dollars to the restaurant every single night until the shutdown ends, and that will feed people who want to dine there for free. So they'll be giving away the food funded by him, mm-hmm. and he's encouraging other wealthy donors in the Bay Area to do the same. Uh, in Boston, this is happening with the government; they are funding restaurants to serve homeless people. Um, I guess across the country, we've seen these community kitchens pop up. Maker's Mark is sponsoring those. So Eduardo Jordan, Nancy Silverton, Ed Lee, a bunch of other restaurants, they are serving free meals um, to restaurant industry workers, all funded by Maker's Mark, the liquor brand. Yeah, a great look for Maker's Mark. I did not expect Maker's Mark to be at the end of these articles. (laughs) Well, you know what I think it is? It's not a cynical take. It's just a, a pragmatic take. I think they have they spend a no. ton of money on the derby, mm-hmm. and that's not happening. So they have all this money. Where can we quickly deploy it to do good? Let's give it to all these restaurants, and they can immediately make all these meals, give away diapers and wipes and everything that people might right, need. Right, rather than finding like some underground greyhound racing establishment. Exactly. To, uh, to <laughs> I wouldn't say that. That's not cynical, but it's not. It's not cynical. Not cynical. Well, that's that's I think going to be on my gravestone. <laughs> Um, But this is kind of what um, Jose Andres, he wrote a big op-ed in the New York Times. This is what he's lobbying for, like, have the government pay restaurants to feed people in need. Like, these are spaces that can cook. They have employees who need the work and are skilled at this. There are safe ways to do it in a way. And there are people who are going to be in need. So let's let's put all of these pieces together. Should we move on to uh, businesses that are doing well during this time period? Uh, maybe starting with liquor. St- it's a great time to be a liquor store. I think it is a great time to be a liquor store. Uh, a lot of these government shutdowns are calling liquor and wine, uh, quote unquote, essential, uh, <laughs> which I <laughs> agree with. So liquor stores are doing big business, especially if they're able to deliver. Yeah. Um, we have a big piece right now up on Eater about how restaurants are basically turning into de facto wine stores. So I think at first when restaurants started shutting down, they started selling off their sellers as a way to fundraise. Yeah. But a lot of restaurants are just keeping it going and just becoming wine stores. Wine stores. And they will use their employees to go deliver or you can come pick up. Um, which is incredibly smart. That's kind of where I would like to buy my wine because the the people you want to talk. Me too. And it's and it's still a, still a pretty hefty markup. So a lot of these places, you know, restaurants. I don't know if this is still the norm, but it's usually a three hundred percent markup. Yeah. And they 
are selling it at 50% of their list price. Right. So, I mean, that 300% from wholesale. So you're still paying more than you would at a retail store. A lot of these bottles are, you know, going for 30 or 40. You could probably get them retail way cheaper. But you feel good about it because you feel like you're supporting your favorite restaurant. And also, you are. again, the curation. Like you trust your sommelier. You trust this restaurant you go to all the time. Uh, I trust my local wine store, but I don't trust every wine store. So I kind of yeah. I, I kind of dig it. The way it. we're going to get through this is by trusting our sommeliers. <laughs> Take it day by day and trust your sommelier. The, one of the things I have found fascinating has been how amazingly influential uh, this distinction between essential and non-essential has been uh, state to state. Uh, for instance, like a few days ago, I did a little run at this completely abandoned mall near me in Toronto, mm-hmm. and the G the GNC was still open, and and I was like, I was really really because sp- vitamins health. Yeah, and she, I was like, you guys are open, and she goes, yes, thank God, the government deemed health food stores to be essential, and I'm like, I just think they haven't checked in on what health food stores in a while. Designated. Yeah, because like they're like, oh, they must sell masks there, and no, they sell like keto iso protein and whatever. <laughs> so did you stock up? No, I trust that they'll just be open forever. <laughs> Fair. I mean, but really, if you think about it, like if liquor stores are open for you, then it's okay for Isoflex to be open for me. I mean, fair. A couple of the other interesting ways that restaurants have been uh, raising money is we've seen a lot of kind of like auctions and and chefs offering Mm -hmm. to do online classes. I'm going to admit that I haven't watched any yet because I've been a little underwater um, with work and kids and stuff, but I'm into it. I like the idea of all these chefs being at home trying to find ways to pass the time and also raise a little money if they can for their staff. So into it, into it. Uh, 11 Madison Park you know, uh, just put up a bunch of auction items to raise money for their staff. Um, one of them was a $5,000 run in the park with the head chef, Daniel Hume. Uh, how much, how much are you going to be bidding on that? You know, um, I'm not really an outside runner. Right. I'm going to say, I, I love a treadmill. Yeah. Maybe you though. I think, you just start the bidding at zero because... No, because you know this, what? This, this has happened to me before where I start uh, an auction bidding low or what I think is low just to like get it going and then I end up winning. And then I'm what, on a five-hour run with this guy? Thought, that's not where I thought this was going. <laughs> I thought what you were going to say is for some charity, you gave them like lunch with Amanda Clute <laughs> and, and you were like, just start it low because I don't want to walk out. Lunch with Amanda Clute starting at $10,000. <laughs> And then just be like, whoa, she takes herself real seriously. <laughs> you're like, just no. start it low. And then someone won your time for like 50 bucks. And you're like, Fuck should we that. do this, Daniel? Should we um, put like a virtual lunch with us for like $10 to raise money for charity? <laughs> if we sure. But we I think we started at like 20K because then if no one does it, it's like, well, 20K was a lot. I don't want to know that I'm worth $700, you know, but or, for ch- for charity. For charity, would I face my f- value <laughs> in dollars? How much am I worth? Anyway, I think you were bringing up the Daniel auction to poke fun, but you know what? He knows his audience. $5,000 run with no, Daniel. No, I'm not exactly poking fun. I, I think that that one, that one is funny because it 
all of the other things that they were auctioning off were food related. And then it was just like a, a 5K, 5K <laughs> with, with Danny Boy. 5K, 5K is pretty good marketing. They can have that if they want because it's for charity. <laughs> Listen, I mean, why not? Like, I think what we've, there's been a huge conversation online of whether or not gift cards are helpful. Mm-hmm. But um, if the restaurant can figure out a way to package future experiences, like I'm seeing a lot of places have, uh, a, they're saying like, we're going to have a huge party, pay what you want for a ticket to this huge party. Yeah. Jonah Miller right? of Huertas in New York is doing that. Um, and he actually wrote a really interesting note to all of his, I don't know, newsletter subscribers, I guess, about yeah. how he doesn't like asking for donations, which I think is very valid as a business owner. It feels very uncomfortable to ask for donations. Um, and then he he went on to say that he felt uncomfortable with how much the industry has to compete against one another. So you're always competing for business, and now you're competing for these donations for your staff. And it's just like such an icky place to be and so uncomfortable. Yeah. And so he's going the route of a reopening party with 100% of the proceeds going to his staff. I mean, it's a really tough decision for a lot of these chefs because and 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 restaurant owners because they have to choose between whether or not to just flat out ask people for money. Yeah. And uh they are businesses, but they're just a lot of them are just constantly skating by even in the best of times. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that competitive element and as a consumer, yeah. you do see that. It's like every restaurant I go to is asking me for money and everyone is like putting up their GoFundMes and their Venmos. And it's just like, oh my God, like as, as a fan, it's unsustainable. I went too hard too soon. I gave a bunch at the beginning and now all these restaurants are popping up and it's just like, it's such a sad reality, but it's like, I feel like in a way they missed, they missed the GoFundMe wave. They missed the, the initial blast. I don't know if that's true. I think especially with these creative solutions, they will find ways to raise money. For sure. I think now you have to do something more creative. I'm saying the first few that came out with the GoFundMes had some success. Yeah, but that might just be personal. Like I've been biding my time. You're waiting? I'm just I'm just gonna wait and see and decide. Like I know there's time here. Like we're gonna be in this for a while and decide do I yeah. if I wanna give just pure dollars. Who am I going to give it to? Am I going to distribute it around my neighborhood or around different restaurants? Yeah. Or am I just going to buy a ton of merch? Or am I just going to... That's because you're keep... so reasonable, though. Well, I'm just saying that we represent two different ways of spending. No, but yours and... is the right one. No, no, no. You you gave with your heart. I'm dispassionate. <laughs> and that's not good. <laughs> I was joking. I was talking to, uh, to Serena last night and I was like, you need to take my GoFundMe account information away. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) We are in Mm -hmm. this for a while and Mm -hmm. I always see things through this angle of like the media buzz. And my instinct is to be like, oh, you guys missed the boat on this media buzz of GoFundMe. And that is such a disgusting (laughs) way to see the world. You're like, how can I, you're like, let me wait four fucking seconds (laughs) to see where the money will actually be useful instead of just pummeling GoFundMes for the first five places and then running out of it. I'm sure. So I honestly, in this case, I'm going to deem, we each get a vote. My vote goes to you being right. Well, I think the places that you donated to appreciate it. So there there is no wrong philanthropy in this age right now. Can you talk about any of the 
don't know, surprising restaurants that you've seen doing things like delivery or takeout or um, cocktail delivery or anything like that? There's a restaurant in LA called Ennaka, which is a Kaiseki, two Michelin starred, super fancy, super hard to get a mm-hmm. table Kaiseki place. I think they charge like $250 for dinner and they're doing uh, $39 bento right. boxes, Beautiful. which look so incredible. And I saw an interesting conversation. Uh, I think um, LA, the LA Times put out a thing where the framing of it was basically, here's an awesome, this is so cool. This is an awesome opportunity to get these meals and to get to, to eat food from these chefs, which I, I kind of, I don't, I don't, I'm not happy about the circumstances, but it, I always love when you see these chefs mm-hmm. who are, do tweezer food, then like make a roast yeah. chicken. Like I love that kind of stuff. And they were like, this is an awesome opportunity. And then some people were saying these restaurants are doing, are just trying to survive here. This isn't like, they're not excited to be doing home cooking. They're just trying to get by. I found that to be like, I mean, philosophically an interesting debate, but to answer your question, I want that bento box. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the idea is it's like, oh, look at this. You can get a Linea food at a discount. Yeah. The complaint is this is a horrible time. You can't take joy in anything. But I, but you're right. Like it's it. I would eat that bento box in a second. And yeah, I'm sad that Ennaka needs to do this and stoop to this level. But I'm here for it. Yeah, I I actually reject. I personally reject the criticism of of the articles that are making it seem like it's fun because like. I don't think anyone is out there being like, I've been waiting for this opportunity to eat Alinea for 40 bucks. <laughs> right, out of a takeout like, container. Finally. Well, I'm finally. While I'm alone in my house. Everyone gets it. Even in the very rare circumstance where someone has been following Alinea their whole life and they're so obsessed with it, but they could never afford to eat there. Even that person is not like, fuck yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fucking time. I've been waiting. If you really care about a place like Alinea, you're not excited that they're doing this because of what it represents for their business. Right. So no one, no one's having like a let's eat as many Michelin stars for delivery as we can party. I, I <laughs> If anyone was having that, it would be you. <laughs> but I, I ordered, I mean, even in Toronto, a couple of the great restaurants are, are doing delivery and I had some great restaurant food delivered last night. How was it? How did it travel? Amazing. But I think you can simultaneously take joy from the fact that really, really talented uh, successful chefs are making home food and also acknowledge the severity and the difficulty of the situation. Yes. We are complex beings. We can accept. We are complex beings. All of the things at once. Amanda, you lost your sm- sense of smell. I did. Last I week. I did. I have not been enjoying fancy restaurant food delivered to my house. Well, neither have I. I had a complex reaction to it. Go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have not even been consuming the food then. Um, So I have not been able to smell for five days. Yeah. And it turns out it is one of the symptoms of COVID-19 that you cannot smell. And for some people, it's the only symptom. For some people, it comes before or after or during your intense bouts of fevers and chills and aches and respiratory distress. But it's just one of the weird weird things going on because you can breathe just fine, but you can't smell or taste anything. That's wild. And you wrote a, you wrote a piece about it, which is now on Eater. But what did you learn uh, talking to people who were going through the same thing? Just that it's sad. Like in the grand scheme of the world, it's and very innocuous and just silly to even think that much about. But 
when you're stuck in your house on quarantine, one of the things you want to do is eat delicious foods and bake and cook and drink all the wine that you're hoarding. And when you Mm -hmm. can't do that, it's just sad. For me, it's not that big a deal because I, you know, have, uh uh-oh, here's here's my kid. Hey, Ansel. Hi. Do you want to come say hi to Daniel real quick? Sorry, Dan. Hold on. Okay, Ansel, you want to go find Poppy? Okay. What a good lad. Yeah, good kid. Well, I'm glad. In, in some ways, I feel like losing your taste is, is it, it, if you just lose your sense of taste, like a lot of people would say that that is amazing because that means, I mean, you've got it and you guys are all self-isolating and you're fine. Yes. But if this I wish I could get tested um to just confirm it because if I did if this is this, which I think it is, then it means I'm good. Then I got off A-okay. I got off easy. Like I felt a little sick for a week, but otherwise yeah. I'm fine. Daniel, we had a story that ran uh towards the end of this week that did some crazy numbers. Uh and the yeah. story is about how Cheesecake Factory wrote a letter to all of its landlords across the country saying, we are not going to be able to pay our rent. Bottom line, we just are not going to have the money. Wow. Yeah. Cheesecake Factory is is just the perfect restaurant to make a splash for this kind of thing for some reason, you know? Why? They're big yeah. and they're kind of silly. Yeah. And they have a big following. Yeah, and like people like them a lot. You know, like it really drives it home. This is not just going to be hard for your favorite mom and pop this is gonna be devastating for a lot of businesses yeah like even even cheesecake factory can't pay their rent so what is your gut call on how this is going to move forward in the case of this cheesecake factory do you think that it's going to be case by case basis where they're going to get into fights with their landlords in some of the some of their spaces or do you think they will be forgiven for one month? How do you think this is going to play out? I mean, I don't know. I think they're all different landlords across the country in 294 restaurants. So I think it will depend. I mean, maybe when they get the stimulus that's about to go through, uh, that can help them pay this rent and some of the other costs that they have. Uh, we're going to get more into the bill next week, depending on whether or not it passes today. Weird time loop going on here, because today, tomorrow, today. Anyway. Um, all right, so let's say I'm a small restaurant. Uh, let's say I'm close to your house, and I serve natural wine, and you love hanging out at me. Anyway, whatever. Cool. Um, <laughs> Are you yeah. Otway or the fly? <laughs> <laughs> no, but so if I have, uh, let's say I have let go all of my employees um, and I have shut my doors and I have, I don't know, let's say 12 employees uh, as this bill hits today with the limited time that you've had to digest it, how will I be affected? So first of all, your employees will get a benefit. They are going to get the stimulus checks that go around to everybody. So long as they make under a hundred thousand dollars. So okay. if they make $75,000 or less, they'll be eligible for a $1,200 check. And it kind of gets lower and lower from there up to the cap of $100,000. Uh, okay. Also, there's a provision that they'll get a $600 a week check on top of unemployment. So that will help them. And there's an extension on unemployment that's being worked in. Mm. So it's usually about half a year. And there's, um, I think, 13 extra weeks. Hold on. And now they can get unemployment for 39 weeks uh, okay. if they qualify. Uh, also, for the business owner... For me, they yeah. for you 
if you have a very small business like the one you're talking about, you can get a loan that will be relieved. So it's basically okay. free money or, or grant. Um, there's a stipulation in that you need to not lay off all of your employees. So you have a time period. I think you have mm-hmm. up until June to hire them all back. Um, if you can't, you know, if you go no, bankrupt by no, then, then no. this is useless. You but here, but if you fine. can keep things going and you're able to reopen and you're able to hire them back, then you can get okay. this basically bailout money to help you get through this. There's also going to be some tax relief. So you <laughs> won't, you can defer your you 2020 taxes for Social Security and Medicare, which is respectively 6.2% and 1.5, 1.45%. So those taxes <laughs> won't be due until end of 2021, half of them, and then the other half end of 2022. In the best case they really scenario, do. They really this do. bill could relieve my taxes going uh, forward, hold on pay my second. employees now and for the foreseeable future, and cover my expenses until I reopen. Yeah, it says the loan that you could be getting would be capped at 2.5 times the average monthly payroll. So that is the okay. that is the loan or the grant that you would be getting is your monthly payroll times two and a half. That makes that's an interesting scenario considering that there's a lot of undocumented workers in New York and and elsewhere who would not be on the payroll. Yeah. Yep. That is an interesting catch. A lot of criticism has been about that, that it's uh, people aren't sure if undocumented workers will get any of this. There is, I think people are saying that there is a loophole where if they are, um, if they are paying taxes because they are. If they pass a substantial presence Mm -hmm. test, they're treated as resident aliens for tax purposes. So they could be getting the stimulus checks. But what you're talking about is would they count towards your loan or your right. grant as a business. And if they're not on your payroll, then how could that be the case? That further punishes me for having undocumented Well, if I'm workers. the American government, then yes, I do want to punish you for, right. like, I'm not giving you uh, extra money because of that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to come fess up with it. Uh, the other thing on your payroll that won't count towards that loan is anyone making over $100,000. So if you yeah. have a lot, if you have a very expensive payroll, a lot of really well-paid people, that's not going to count towards your 2.5 X, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, I think the biggest catch is that you, um, the loan diminishes if you lay off workers because they really want to incentivize you to hire people back and get people off unemployment. Interesting. Okay. So we'll keep tabs on this and we'll see uh, We'll see what the reaction is from uh, from business owners especially. Yeah. Next week we can talk to um, people really in it to get their thoughts and feelings and opinions. Amanda, we are going to be right back after this word from Seedlip. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is, uh, this. I mean, this story I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, one of, truckers obviously eat a lot of food. They're out on the road constantly. That's what they do. They're truckers. They're on the road. Uh, they've had a big problem getting food because a lot of them eat at McDonald's mm-hmm. and you know what it's just this is just f- almost funny to me is that like they spend their whole time in the truck but they can't get drive through obviously oh, the trucks are too shit. big so they haven't been able to eat at McDonald's which a lot of them and a lot of them do eat at McDonald's so they're they're McDonald's is adapting to figure out a new way of having parking lot delivery I never thought about trucks not being able to go through the drive-through. That's You're so obvious. You're so but... in the truck that it doesn't work because yeah. you you've gone all the way. <laughs> You're driving too hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's actually this is on a lighter note. When you see those big rigs, uh, those like people who outfit their SUVs with the giant tires, mm-hmm. I love that those people can't get drive-through. <laughs> That's great. They deserve it. That it's so silly. I mean, unless you have a reason for that. I don't even know what reason you would actually have for that. I guess if there's if your home is across a pond or something, maybe you could make a case for it. But I, I want to close on a note. We're gonna get to Dan Juicy of like people just people should just be nice to each other. Uh, a friend of mine who owns uh, a restaurant called Saigon Social in New York um, had an issue with a door dasher delivery person last night who came up screaming, who got, who showed up early, Chef Helen Wynn, uh, the, the, the guy showed up, she said seven minutes early and said, what's taking so long? The restaurant is empty. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Everybody just chill the fuck out. Yeah. Thank you to all the delivery people who are helping people eat. Thank you to all the chefs who are in their restaurants, sending out delivery food for people to eat. But you know what? Um, these are these are strange and unprecedented uh, circumstances. The word unprecedented is now overused. I hate that this is also what's causing me anxiety. Like everyone, it, everyone is texting everyone saying, "How are you holding up?" And now I'm like, "Oh, I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm over what's that." What's your What's your new way to check in on people? I don't know. I mean, what do you pivot to? How are things? Original non-cliched way to do it. I mean, I've, I've, re- I've resorted all the way back to the beginning and instead I just say sup and I do S with the up arrow. Jesus. <laughs> just like the old days of, of instant messaging. <laughs> no, I don't know. But I mean, you know what? This is no time to fret over cliches. I just worry that people are- Say, how are you? And it's fine. Yeah. I just, uh, it's so in my head that these that people who are in situations that are not ideal right now are going to open their text messages. It's just going to be, 12 people saying, how are you holding up? And then, you know, you got to stand out out of those people if you want to keep your lines of communication open. Wow. I'm okay. fine. It's fine. <laughs> so how am I? How am I holding up? I, 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 let's move on to Dan Juicy. you know? All right. Let's move on to Dan Juicy, who is uh, having to radically change his business, feeding kids in schools to feeding kids while they are not in school and, and delivering as many meals as he can using limited staff in this absolutely crazy time. Dan, would you mind just quickly explaining 
um, what your normal day's operation is? Yeah. Yeah. So on a normal day, um, with Brigade, we put chefs, uh, professional chefs into grade schools in different capacities. So in some school districts we work in, they are overseeing um, whole operations, uh, working with the staff, changing the menus to execute primarily scratch-made foods. Uh, in some of the school districts we work in, we basically deploy a training program. So one of our chefs moves from school to school, uh, really kind of rearranging their kitchens, instituting different standard procedures and protocols, and again, really trying to elevate what they're already doing and then work towards making more scratch-cooked food. So that's kind of what we do on a normal uh, day. So now that the schools in New York are closed, what are you doing? What we're doing now is operating under the guidance of um, the summer meals program, essentially. So you might know, you might not know, but during the summer, kids are fed. Um, anyone over under the age of 18 can get a meal um, at, a, at a site. Um, and, and this is kind of the program we're operating under now. That program states that basically you can only serve two of the three potential meals um, from one place. So we are serving two meals. We're serving breakfast and lunch. Um, so I can speak more specifically to New London. Um, we're offering breakfast and lunch. And what we're doing now, we've actually minimized the amount of days that people are working. Whereas before everyone was working every single day through the week. Um, we felt that that wasn't necessary. So we've adjusted uh, the way that we're working. So we're working three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So on Monday, uh, breakfast and lunch is, is prepared and then distributed for kids uh, to get them to Wednesday. So you can imagine it's a lot of meals that have to go out one day, um, but we feel like this is the safest way. And, and actually in New London now, we're distributing meals by school bus. So in a small town like New London, we're distributing to 36 different sites um, so people can come and pick them up and get as many meals as they need for their kids. So it's trying to make it as convenient as possible, trying to keep people, our staff, away from anyone from the outside, keeping other people from the outside away from other people from the outside. It's a real challenge, but right. it's kind of what needs to happen. Can you tell us what the districts are that you're in yeah. um, and sure. how many kids you're feeding every day? Yeah, I mean, the amount of kids that we're feeding is a little bit challenging to say because our, our the way in which we work in these school districts is different. So we work in New London Public Schools. Uh, there is, we're overseeing, basically, we work with the food service director there um, to really kind of oversee the whole operation. That's six schools. It's about 3,500 students. So you could say that that's something that we're doing on a daily basis. During the course of the year, we're feeding kids breakfast, lunch, and, and many of the schools supper as well. Uh, we work with New York City Public Schools. Our work there now is limited to two schools. We were supposed to go into two more schools um, basically now. Now will be delayed. We also work with their school food administration to help develop menus. Basically, those schools in which we operate in act as kind of a testing ground for menus and protocols and procedures to hopefully then be deployed system-wide. Um, New York City Public Schools is feeding a million kids a day approximately, um, so that's enormous. Um, so again, we're not directly doing that. We like to think that we're kind of uh, influencing some of the decisions that they're making. We work in Southampton Public Schools, which is only three schools. It's a tiny school district in New York, Southampton, New York. Um, that's where we're deploying a training program. So basically one of our chefs was just making their way through the three schools. His role has now changed, and now he's just helping them make sure that they're doing things as best as possible during this time. Similarly, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, that is a large school district. It's about 40 schools. We were sending uh, a chef through different schools to do the training program there as well. 
which now his responsibility has changed uh, to helping them strategize and oversee this kind of whole issue. Are you being given more money now to produce food than you were before this happened? Yeah. So or because you're on summer program. Exactly. Yeah. For so summer summer program reimbursement rate is is about fifty cents higher per meal. Which when you're talking, um, that's I think it's like three ninety six. I think three dollars and ninety six cents. That's what we're getting per lunch. Um, when you're talking fifty cents, it's a lot. Um, so that definitely helps for sure. Um, so in terms of the food, uh, this is all taken care of. So we serve a meal, it gets paid for. I think the real challenge is, you know, for example, if you have 100 employees during the course of the school year and only 20 of them are working now, uh, many school districts are grappling with the idea, okay, do we pay? Can we pay all of the staff that are not working? Um, and, and most school districts are definitely, they want to do that and are leaning towards that. Um, whether they know how they're going to pay for it ultimately or not, they're going to do it. Um, but this is the real challenge and the real struggle of how to kind of pay for these employees during this time. Could you talk about how the, the unions have been making it difficult to organize your staff? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that, you know, and, and, and certain issues bring the whole union thing into perspective. You know, for example, in that issue, in that kind of scenario I just brought up, if you have 100 people going to 20 people and it's a unionized uh service or, or, or department, usually certain people are getting priorities um, in terms of seniority. Those people will get um, the work. And bringing in volunteers essentially to displace um, paid workers doesn't really work uh, for a lot of reasons. And, and union or not, if you think about it, um, it's, it's not great anyway. You don't really want to displace people that, that potentially could be getting paid. It's a tricky situation, mm-hmm. though. Um, so some unionized places I see that I know that are unionized are having volunteers and it seems to be okay. Unions op- obviously uh, operate differently in different places. But with that said, it does get complicated and not just because it's this like very desperate situation do these things go away. There's still logistics, there's still uh, business happening, if you will. And as much as I would love to think that those things would just kind of like disappear for a moment and we would just do yeah. what's best for everyone, um, it doesn't work that way. And, and one other thing is that a lot of the folks that are getting seniority and are, are choosing to work because they have to work because they might not necessarily be getting paid otherwise, a lot of these folks might be older. In fact, a lot of um, school food service workers are elder, elderly people, um, and a lot of them do have underlying health conditions. So this brings up a whole nother, you know can of worms that we're trying to figure out how to deal with. Kind of what I'm hearing is that means that you're in a position where you have to choose between someone who has seniority, who wants to work, who is older and potentially uh, more of a, of a risk versus someone who doesn't have seniority, who is younger, who also wants to work and that decision then falls on you? It, that deci- well, that, that's the problem. The decision doesn't fall on us. Um, it's, it's basically there's a list of people and you have to go down that list and it's like, do you wanna yeah. work? And if they say yes, then it's it's they're entitled to that work. Um, okay. So that's how it works. That's the real challenge. And some of these folks will say, you know, I don't want to work because I'm at risk and I am okay right now in terms of finances. Right. But a lot of these folks need to work. Like most people need to work. So, of course, they're going to choose to work. And we, we kind of have our, have our hands tied. Um, even if we want to say, hey, look, it's probably not a good idea that you work. It's really... It's really between them, the union, and the school district at that point. How do you keep the people safe in your kitchens? 
Well, I think the, 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 the best thing we can do, um, first of all, is minimize the amount of people working. And that's a hard thing to do because <laughs> back to what I said, you want to make, you know, if, if, if it is a situation where people are not going to get paid unless they work, you kind of want to have as many people working as possible to ensure they get paid. But at the same time, mm-hmm. that's, that's really not very responsible. So it's about limiting the amount of people who are working in general. It's about limiting the amount of people who are working in one given space. So for example, in a small school district like New London, that there are only six schools, um, we have now split our operation into multiple kitchens versus one with very mm-hmm. small teams. So you have a limited amount of people working in, in, a, in a space so they can, be, they can be far apart from each other. But also looking as we move forward, the challenge isn't so much now, but for example, if we have 15 employees working and technically those 15 employees could work all out of one kitchen and make things work perfectly and it would be very efficient. The fact of the matter is if one of those employees gets sick, what do we do then? That kitchen gets shut down and all of those 15 employees have to be quarantined for two weeks. So now splitting up those 15 employees into multiple kitchens uh, makes everything safer. And if one of them does get sick uh, and you can quarantine the one group, you still have two operating spaces or a couple operating spaces. So it's it's I think there's there's looking at it now and how to be safe now, but it's really... Um, as we're being told, obviously, by everyone, um, the worst is yet to come. So how do we prepare for that? That's really the issue. And making sure that we have trained staff kind of in the wings, ready to take people's places. In fact, we have two chefs in New London, for example, one of which is pretty much overseeing the the whole operation. The other one was working, but we've decided to take him out entirely, basically have him just out on his own and be, be away from this because if our chef gets sick himself or test positive for this, we need to be able to replace him. So it's really being able to make sure you can sustain it. And for me, that's kind of the biggest issue I think folks will face because it really does take a lot of foresight. Um, and I don't know if every school district even has kind of the resources and people to be able to kind of plan in that way. Would you talk a little bit about the different challenges that the different districts pose yeah. for you? I mean, it, it really comes down to, again, I think operationally in terms of like producing meals, um, it's, it's, it's nothing different. If anything, it's become a little easier as now our focus is less on really kind of pushing the envelope and, and seeing what we can produce and trying to make meals as good as we can, but also trying to take away as much labor as possible. So some of the meals have become simpler. So that's, that's easier. I think the biggest issue, again, is really what we were just talking about, mm. kind of making sure that in every district, like what are the practices that are actually happening? Obviously, every school district poses different um, kind of difficulties and challenges. And some of those um, are easier to deal with than others and easier to plan for. So a lot of what we do is strategizing. And it's like, you know, are we delivering meals? Are we having people come pick up meals? If they are picking them up, where are they picking them up? We've instituted kind of delivery windows in some of the school districts we're in. So like, for example, people can drive up and pick things up. Again, mm-hmm. uh, in some of the school districts, you have people choosing not to work now. So um, in some school districts, everyone's paid for. So that's the other that's the other challenge. So as much as you want people to get paid, if they're going to get paid no matter what, then they're like, well, why would I work? So then, right. do you have enough people working? And 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 you can kind of understand where they're coming from if they choose they don't want to yeah. work. Um, so really, the the major challenges now really have to do with staffing, and it and it's such a tricky situation again because yeah. I think during the school year things are a lot more clear cut. 
and you can take sides and say, well, I don't understand this or I understand this. Now it's like, it's really challenging because we, we want to feed everyone, yeah. but you can also understand why some of the staff are like, ah, I don't know if I want to be here. I feel a bit, I don't feel safe. So the, the tricky situation now, and the question I ask our staff every day, our chefs are like, do you feel safe? Do you think that the proper things are happening within the school district to ensure your safety and the staff's safety? And, and again, that's easier said than done. It's like, do you have masks? Do not have masks? Should we be wearing masks? How many people are working in each kitchen? Has anyone tested, has been tested in your kitchen? I mean, these are all things that like in some places they're happening, in some places they're not. What are the protocols? What's the local health department saying or not saying? Um, it, it seems to be there's a lot of inconsistency in terms of the messaging around all these things um, from, from, from kind of more local agencies. So that makes right. things challenging because we are a partner as well. So we work within the framework of a school district. So if they're operating in one way and another school district is operating a different way, we, we kind of fall in line with that. But at some point now with all these things, you have to kind of draw that line and say, hey, look, like, is this, are, 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 you, are you okay with this? Like, do you really feel strongly that this is the safest way to do these things? And then, you know, people need to reevaluate. And like, don't get me wrong, I, I truly believe everyone's trying to do the right thing, um, but it is confusing for everyone. And, and the reason we work in school food as it is, is because it's a very challenging space and it's a very under-resourced space. So now with this added additional challenge, like it makes it that much harder. We've seen a lot of people come, uh, as you were saying, like a lot of people want to help sure. out. Would you would you talk about the challenges that you face when you have planned meals? Yes. When there are these random pockets of 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 huge uh, food giveaways yeah. in these areas that you're feeding. Yeah. So I think I think New York City is probably the best example, and this is something like I can say more as a witness in that we're. We're operating in a couple of schools, um, which gives us enough of an idea of what's happening and what's not happening. But in a big city like New York, there's obviously a, a variety of partners throughout the course of the year who do a variety of things and services. And now, obviously, in a time of need, uh, there are more people who kind of come out and say, hey, we're going to help because there's loads of people here and there's loads of people in need. The problem hey, is, is, for example, um, you, know, you have all these sites operating across the city. You have all these people showing up to work. You have all this food being produced. And then if there's no coordination with outside organizations, then what happens is in one place, they might not have enough food. But in another school, for example, uh, we saw like I think the, one of the schools that we're working in, the first week we we're operating, you know, we're preparing 400 meals and only 20 get served because there's another organization close by that had prepared meals as well and gave those meals out. The other thing is that right. the meals that, that are being prepared in schools are, are reimbursed by a federal program, the National School Lunch Program. Meals that are being prepared by other organizations typically are being paid by nonprofit funds. Look, it's all great work, but at the same time, it's kind of crazy to think that uh, mm -hmm. you'd be preparing all these meals. Again, having all these people show up to work, which again, as we talked about, is a risk in itself. Is a risk. The food being is being prepared, and then it's being wasted. Um, and then these are being taken place by meals that are not even federally reimbursed. Seems kind of crazy. So um, it's a challenge. And I think everyone's trying to do the right thing. There's no question. But I will say that when you have a variety of federally reimbursed food programs, which there are many, 
So there are federally reimbursed programs, obviously like the National School Lunch Program. There are programs that feed the elderly. These are all reimbursed. You have to work within a certain guideline, of course. Um, but the money is there and it's budgeted for these programs. So again, mm-hmm. it's kind of nuts to think that we wouldn't be utilizing those programs to the fullest. What are you telling people to do who call you and say, like, you know, I'm out of work, I want to help out? Yeah, I mean, it's challenging. I think what I would say is, is first and foremost to contact, you know, your local, whatever it may be, school district, if there's a senior center, programs that are operating within federally reimbursed programs. I think those are the, the places I would contact first and see if they need help. Um, obviously, if you're in a place to financially um, help people, um, you can donate directly to a school food program, for example. Uh, but I think the other thing that people need to understand is, like I said earlier, the idea of volunteering into one of these programs, uh, volunteering for one of these programs is a little, you know, maybe not desirable by by the program itself at this point. You want to limit the amount of people you have in a school. And obviously, even during the course of the year, it's quite often that people are asking me, can, it, can I volunteer? And it, it, it's a school. You know, you have kids there and, and, you know, it's it's not like you just show up and you work in a school. You know, everybody works in a school, gets background checked, all these things. So, like, there's a little more to it. Um, it's 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 a sensitive space. And even again, in these times of need, there's there's protocols, there's procedures. And, you know, as much as you'd kind of like want to, like, wipe all these rules away and just say, like, let's just make sure everyone gets food. It's just not going to happen. Right. Like, again, people are just going to have to like it's going to be a challenging time for a lot of people. And it's hard to see and it's hard to say. Um, but yeah. I think in order to do this right, in order to do it correctly, uh, you, you can't involve everyone. Dan Juicy, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, we will talk to you again. Thank you for your work. At a different time. <laughs> thank you. When things yeah. are Thanks better. for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Eater's Digest. Thank you to Amanda Clute. Thank you, Daniel uh, Janine. Thank you to Dan Juisty for taking the time to chat with us on the show. You can find his social information in the episode description. Check out his company, Brigade. Um, check out all of the coverage at not only eater.com, but the various city sites, which are doing some incredible and really important work right now. Uh, and... Uh, I must say, are not working the traditional nine to five hours. That is right. They are really bringing it. So yeah, support that journalism. And uh, we'll see you next week for another episode of Eater's Digest. In quarantine. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.